Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Conspiranormal. All right, welcome back to Conspiranormal, guys. This is Adam. Serfiel is here, and we got two people that are good friends of ours that we are really excited because they have just put out their book that they have co-written where the footprints end volume one. And that is Joshua Cutchin and Tim Monumental. Renner. Say hello guys. Howdy. Hello. Uh, it's good to have you. And, uh, the audience, if, if anybody that's listening, went to the strange realities conference, you got to see these guys present and give a preview of this book yeah. back in October. Yes. That's right. Yeah. We had a tag team presentation. Yeah. And I, I'm thrilled that, uh, uh, Jennifer, who was there at the conference, was like, yeah, I thought hearing your interviews and having been at the conference, like I kind of knew what to expect from the book, but no, it's awesome. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to hear because there was a there were a couple of times when Tim and I would look at each other and we'd be like, are we kind of uh, are kind of showing our hand a little bit too much here? Yeah, I wondered about that, too, because, you know, I've heard so many of your interviews and I've talked to you guys about this a lot, but there is a ton in the book and. It's not just only like what I think we're about like 260 pages, something basically like that. And of course, there are more pages coming when you put out volume two. But I mean, you guys pack a lot in. There's a lot of material and there's a lot without being too encyclopedic, too. When when you add in the when you add in the introduction, it it ends up over 320, I think, pages, actually. (laughs) Something like that. And for anybody who's who thinks the way that I do, I think it's like a round uh, around a hundred thousand words. So yes. And, and, and copious notes. Copious oh yeah. That's notes. And co- <laughs> copious that's, citations. That's, that's part of the Joshua Cutchin brand. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Tim and I have, Tim and I have talked more about end notes than, 
than anybody ever should have to in their in one lifetime. <laughs> so, guys, um, for anybody that doesn't know, you guys, let's talk about kind of like the origins of this book, where the footprints end. Like, why did you guys decide to write this book about kind of the supernatural aspects of Bigfoot? It needed to be written. I, it really did. There was so much out there that is skirting this. Now, there's, you know, some authors have certainly mentioned it. Some have uh, very explicitly dove into it, like uh, Stan Gordon, for instance, and uh, Al Berry in his, like, 1973 book, which is just called Bigfoot. He uh, he did not avoid it at all, the, the weird stuff. But um, the vast majority, I think, of what's been written... And what's been just put out there in general as far as, you know, Bigfoot media, whether it be TV shows or podcasts or whatever, has been very biased away from this weird stuff. And it's been uh, very, very biased towards this idea that these are flesh and blood creatures. They're only flesh and blood creatures and there's nothing else. And many of the cases have been what we call weird washed. They've been if there's weird elements, they've not been reported. They've been taken out and and ignored in favor of the things that make Bigfoot sound just like a big giant monkey. Right. And you guys call this, we kind of play on this whole thing. We've talked about a lot, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but you guys talk about uh, the flesh and blood hypothesis. F, B, and H is what you guys call it in the book. Yes. Also a, a great name for a bank. <laughs> no, F, 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 and B, H. <laughs> F and B, H. <laughs> Yes, very true. Some some people have tried to sort of because there's so there are different ideas of thought and ufology, and one of the most pervasive is the extraterrestrial hypothesis, the idea that UFOs come from other planets. And you know, in UFO circles, it's very common to just abbreviate that ETH. And and people have tried similar things with Bigfoot, but they've always kind of been a little bit tongue in cheek. You know, people have talked about like tracks and turds, Bigfoot, the tracks and turds, Bigfoot researchers. <laughs> so that doesn't work because uh, it's you know it's a little bit it's I don't think it's quite dignified enough and uh, and uh, you know to say nuts and bolts bigfooters isn't accurate because <laughs> bigfoot I don't think I don't think bigfoot has nuts and bolts I mean he probably has nuts but um, <laughs> um, so that was, that was sort of my answer is to do the flesh and blood hypothesis F and B H and I think that that term probably pops up a little bit more in volume two. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, so that was sort of the, the shorthand that we tried to introduce early on and, and refer to that as we, as we go along. It's pretty apt because just like UFOs and aliens, alien abduction, where you have a lot of strangeness as if, as if a craft from outer space isn't strange enough, you have a great deal of high strangeness, you have a great deal of odd happenings, you have a great deal of things pulled in from uh, encounters like with ghosts and all this type of thing that happens in those encounters in the UFO world, just in the same way that it happens with Bigfoot. And we're going to get into that. Um, But Tim, I wanted to ask you, because you start off the book um, with the idea of the company that they keep. Mm -hmm. And um, let's kind of talk about what, why that's important to kind of understand that. Well, that, that actually was, uh, I think it was Josh who first told me, like when I was talking about all the weird stuff that surrounds Bigfoot, 
He said that was a direct quote from Josh. He said, look at the company these things keep, man. And that really got me thinking about it. And in particular, that chapter concerns eight, eight to ten square miles in uh, Delta, Pennsylvania, which is in York County where I live. And it's just packed with weirdness. Like just, just, just everything from people holding seances to, and, this, and uh, they contacted pirate spirits, which told them there was buried treasure in the area, to tales of like haunted mansions that have orbs that glide down the side of the mansion and, and uh, leprechauns that supposedly haunt the grounds and fairy rings around them to there's a nuclear power plant within the area. Uh, UFO sightings, of course, and tons and tons of Bigfoot sightings, like way too many Bigfoot sightings for an eight square mile area that that span over, by the way, like over 100 years. I mean, they go back to the 1880s, the sightings. So all of that strangeness kind of packed into this one little area. And it's it's hard for me to believe that there's no connection at all. Now, I can't tell you what the connection is, but uh, I can't help but think that there, there has to be some sort of connection for all this weirdness to appear in the same place. And likewise, going along with that, uh, it's impossible for me to believe that there's a breeding population of ape men in York County, Pennsylvania. So that yeah. figures in with this other weirdness. Right, because you've got way too much human habitation there and not enough woods for them to survive in. And yeah, there's all this kind of stuff. If if you know the difference between like woods and wilderness, like wilderness is pretty much untouched land. In York County, Pennsylvania, there is no wilderness. We don't have any wilderness. We have plenty of woods, you know, but uh, there's no such thing as kind of like untouched land here. And uh, the idea that there could be a breeding population of giant ape men here is just, I mean, it's it's laughable, really. It's just I mean, absolutely silly. But yet they're seen here all times a year. Uh, so if, if they're nomadic, they're coming through all times a year. Tell me why that is, you know, and, uh, you know, through, throughout time, basically, you know, as far back as I could find. And, and uh, up until modern day, I'm still getting sightings in the area. You start off the book with this story, and this is the one that uh, basically like possession by Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> George Kowalsik encounter. And this is something, I guess, from the Stan Gordon material. Stan Gordon was the primary investigator on that, yeah. And, I mean, this is this is weird. What happens in this case? What doesn't happen in this case? I, the, the, <laughs> Very the true. Reason we, yeah. The reason we start off the book with that is because I think we agreed, like, if, if there's one case to best exemplify all the weirdness that goes with Bigfoot, it's probably that one. And it was 1973 in Fayette County, Pennsylvania. And uh, it starts with a UFO sighting, which this UFO is seen in the sky by several witnesses. Um, it lands on a farm. So you have a UFO landing. Then you have all these strange sounds associated with it from buzzing and humming to baby crying. You have bad smells associated with it, uh, like sulfuric smells or I think burning tires. Maybe the guy said as well. Um there's two Bigfoot creatures that are seen. They're shot at um, multiple times and hit. And the guy said when he when he shot at it and hit it, didn't react. So that's what we call shorthand term uh, bulletproof Bigfoot in the book because there's so many <laughs> of that as well. Uh, he said it sounded like firing into a pond or, or a lake. Uh, he just went plop when he shot a bullet into it, didn't react. Uh, they had glowing eyes. Um, the... 
investigators were called. Well, the police were called. The police showed up. The policeman said he could read his paper by uh, the light of ring that was left in the field where the UFO craft had either landed or hovered just above the field. Um, so that was still glowing. The investigators arrive. There's a incident with so the main witness, uh, Kowaltzik, he, he uh, actually starts like growling and, and running around and screaming. And his own father said he, he thought he'd been possessed by the Bigfoot creatures. He, he, eventually, he kind of passes out, um, wakes up later and, and tells everyone he has no memory of this. But he does remember this like Grim Reaper like figure that had warned him about, you know, the impending doom of the earth. Very kind of UFO contactee kind of stuff while while he was in this Bigfoot trance. Apparently this happened and uh Later on, this witness is visited by uh, this, these two people, may or may not be, you know, like men in black types. One was in Air Force Blues and the other was in a suit, he said, who uh, hypnotized him. And they uh, either outright said or at least suggested that they were with Stan Gordon. And years later, Stan Gordon said, hey, I want to hypnotize you. And the guy said, you already hypnotized me and told him the story of these two people coming about two weeks after his sighting that had hypnotized him and, and uh, he never saw him again. So there's just this. All kinds of weirdness just bound up in this one case. And that's what what I think you did a really good job of, Tim, is that I have read different accounts of that, and I never feel like there's ever really a full, accurate account of all the strangeness plus the stuff that happened afterwards. And the way that you were able to sort of, you know, jigsaw all that together is pretty impressive. Yeah, I used multiple accounts to, to try to get like the most complete story I could because. You know, Stan tells most of it in his book, and uh, um, Al Berry tells a good bit in his book, and I thought that was very important because his book is, like, very contemporary. I mean, it just happened when Al Berry uh, wrote his book, and uh, so he was, you know, with with the information that Al Berry put in his book would have been very fresh at the time, and then uh, some from the the, uh, Chestnut Ridge movie that uh, Small Town Monsters did. Yeah, I had a feeling with that case when I was first reading it that it was almost like his mind just snapped because of what he saw. It was just too much for him to handle. I, yeah, I mean, it could be. It's um, He definitely had a personality change, but there's a before and after with him. And again, this is very much like UFO contactee stuff, where he was not interested in the paranormal or anything like it before and then afterwards, he became very, very interested in that and, you know, expressed psi phenomenon and, and stuff uh, through his life. Um, so the, the marked change in him before and after this incident. Um, but, uh, you know, Stan has tapes of this. He has tapes of him running around and screaming, apparently. And uh, he's very, very protective of them. I, I, I was told by people that you will never hear those tapes, Tim. I've been like, huh. like trying to lean on Stan, you know, Hey, you know, you gotta like, let me have these tapes. Let me have these tapes. And I've been, I've been told by, you know, mutual friends who, who know Stan better than I, that it's like, nah, you'll, you'll never get those tapes. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. But that's, that was a crazy, that was a really just interesting case. And it's something that I had never heard before, but also you, you talk about the alien contact experience and it being similar there's also the similarity of near-death experiences, too. People experience the same kind of uh, phenomenon after that as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so it's like the transformative experience. 
So you guys talk a lot about in the book uh, the the wilderness geist phenomenon, and my question is the behaviors that Bigfoot might manifest, and I say Bigfoot in quotation marks that are kind of similar to a poltergeist. And Josh, you start out with this kind of certain class that the BFRO puts these things in and how it's Bigfoot is actually never seen in this context. So I think that the important thing to remember when looking at this is that a lot of the stuff that people report Bigfoot doing like throwing rocks and like making noises and voices in the forest at night and having a horrible smell and, you know, making knocks and, and raps on the trees uh, with the exception of, of a wood knock, which I don't think anybody has seen. Have they, Tim? Um, or I'm, I'm sure someone has claimed to have seen yeah, it, but it's not I, something I, that you think, hear a lot. Yeah. I think people have claimed to see both them swinging branches and like them hitting their hands on trees and making right. a similar sound. Um, it's, it's rare for sure. But, but most of these are not only have people seen Bigfoot do them, but they're also for the most part, you know, primatological attributes, something that primates of all kinds do. So having said that, uh, I, I think it was, I thought it was important to reframe some of these class B reports that the Bigfoot field research organization, um, puts out, which are reports where there's a lot of behavior that seems to suggest the presence of something in the woods, but a Sasquatch is never observed or, you know, just, you know, briefly observed. So we're talking about things like people who are out hiking and they see these large footprints and they smell a funny smell and something throws a rock at them, but they never see, you know, a a tall hairy hominid. And uh, this, this got me thinking on a line of thought that several other researchers have sort of flirted with in the past, but never really done a deep dive on, which is this idea that, all these same things that we attribute to Bigfoot in these reports where Bigfoot isn't seen, these class B reports can be completely um, attributed to poltergeist phenomena. They're the exact same suite of phenomena that you see in poltergeist cases, except they're outside. And uh, I think the reason that nobody's really pursued this, the reason that people hear about, you know, a rock being thrown at a hiker and they jump to Bigfoot is because nobody has really entertained the idea of a poltergeist being outdoors. Um, to my knowledge, there really isn't a, a real uh, a real precedent for that in any of the literature. Um, so it got me wondering, you know, how much of how many of these cases, how much of this behavior that people will say, "Oh, I had the X happen to me in the woods, and it must have been Bigfoot," how much of that could possibly be attributed to something like uh, a wilderness poltergeist, a wilderness geist, um, as as it were? Um, so it's 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 more a thought experiment. I'm, I've talked with. <laughs> This is I, I talked with Greg Bishop about this. Like, if you go through this book and you expect us to come to some sort of conclusion about what Bigfoot is, that's, that's the wrong way to read it. They're, they're sort of separate, discrete essays playing with different things. I mean, basically, the, the thesis of it, of the whole book, is that we don't know, you know, what Bigfoot is, but there are a lot of different traditions that speak to behaviors that we attribute to Bigfoot now. So there's a lot of contradictory things between chapters. This particular chapter is playing with the idea that some Bigfoot behavior might be attributed to uh, what is essentially a wilderness poltergeist. Now, whether that means a discarnate spirit that lives in the woods, or that means something along the lines of a traditional poltergeist, which is, you know, psi activity that's manifesting around a, a, a focal person, uh, I'm not sure. And I play with some different hypotheses uh, in, that, in that regard. But uh, 
Pretty much everything involved in poltergeist activity has a precedent in Bigfoot activity, with the exception of perhaps, um, you know, uh, starting fires. But you look at descriptions of how, you know, poltergeist voices sound, and there's a great Colin Wilson quote that I can't remember off the top of my head, but he talks about how, you know, in poltergeist cases, uh, you know, the voices start out as these animalistic grunts and this nonsensical jabber, which is exactly what people describe when they think they hear Bigfoot in the woods talking sometimes. Kind of like the Sierra um, sounds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Colin Wilson quote, well, I'll just look for it here. Um, it sounds like it could be describing the, Colin, the, the uh, Sierra sounds. They do not sound like ordinary human voices, at least not to begin with. They begin in a guttural voice that sounds as if it were made up from grunts and groans. Uh, and, that's, and that's in poltergeist cases. And it sounds just like what we are familiar with uh, Barry and Moorhead Sierra sounds, which if anybody is unfamiliar, they're very easy to find on the internet. Probably the most uh, authentic or definitely the most cited recordings of, of Bigfoot talking in this, what's described as this sort of really guttural samurai chatter uh, sort of sounds, sounds nonsensical. Um, but uh, you know, you look at the stone, the thrown stone phenomena. Um, there are people who have these stones thrown at them and they pick them up and they're warm to the touch. Now the cryptozoologist who's in favor of it being a flesh and blood Bigfoot says, Oh, the Bigfoot was holding it in its hand and it warmed the stone, but stones that are warm that a port uh, out of nowhere or st stones that like just show up in the middle of a room and drop to the floor in poltergeist cases are almost universally described as being warm to the touch as well. Um, and then you look at uh, something that sort of goes underreported is, is the appearance of things that look like Bigfoot in seances, which, you know, between a poltergeist infestation uh, and, and seances, those are your two real, uh, your real, focal points for where these poltergeists tend to manifest. So if it didn't manifest on its own around a, a young person who is probably going through puberty, uh, it would manifest with a medium in a seance. And there are plenty of examples of uh, mediums who manifest these like Neanderthal looking men or these half gorilla ape men or these really very hairy hands, all sorts of things like that. So to me, that makes me wonder if there isn't some sort of shared uh, DNA between the poltergeist experience and the Bigfoot experience. So hence, Wildmusgeist was born. Right. Yeah, it's 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 very um, it's very similar to each other. Like the the idea that you guys have said many many times that if it's inside a house, it's a poltergeist. If it's in the yes. woods, it's outside. Then it must be Bigfoot. Just. <laughs> That's the, 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 the general reasoning, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. These phenomena, and this really got driven home to me in a big way, but all these phenomena, all paranormal phenomena, are both setting and culture dependent. Because you'll read some stuff from some, some cultures that describe witches or you know hairy ghosts that to us today we're like no that was a bigfoot but that's that's just it's, they're viewing it through a specific cultural lens and like you said which is what you know our good friend soraya has said oftentimes is that you know a light in a, a in an abandoned house is a ghost you know a light in the sky is a ufo and a light in the woods is you know a, a fairy or some sort of you know maybe it's a bigfoot orb <laughs> or bigfoot's glowing eyes something like that but it's always this you can have these things that's things that Honestly, a lot of times look almost look and behave almost identically, but because they appear in different areas, we tend to sort of reframe the way that we uh, that we interpret them, and I think that's that's right. something of a problem. Right. If you guys really take a dive into into folklore to explore the relationships and similarities to these other phenomena, because folklore is like the the record of 
all these same types of happenings for however however long. Well, I, I, I'm a fan of making this comparison not because because Greg Bishop has slapped my hand for saying this numerous times, and this is not that's not my intent. Is to, it's, I'm not trying to, to compare it in quality, but in terms of like the subject matter and, and what we're the, the book is trying to do is it's trying to do um, what Greg Newkirk says in the back cover, which is it's trying to be passport to Magonia for Bigfoot. You know, yeah. uh, Jacques Vallée wrote that book in the '60s, and it really made a lot of people pay attention to these older folkloric parallels uh, that really resonated with the UFO phenomena. And, you know, cryptozoology has been so obsessed with the idea that this is a flesh and blood creature that they haven't even really bothered to look at traditions that seem completely unrelated. You know, they haven't looked at, you know, the Western magical tradition. They haven't really looked at, like I said, witches, ghosts, uh, you know, they haven't really sort of tried to make this cross uh, disciplinary, uh, interpretation. So I'm not saying that this book is as good as Passport to Magonia. <laughs> by no by no stretch of the imagination. But but that's it's kind of the mindset that I think might help people wrap around uh wrap their minds around what the book is about. Yeah, understanding the importance of folklore and that a lot of different cultures have got these hairy wild men are these other characters, these other beings that are very similar. I th- that it it's it's saying that like Bigfoot doesn't just come out of a vacuum. It just doesn't come from it doesn't come from out there, and it doesn't just start in like the 1950s or whenever people started seeing it in the United States. That's my least favorite thing is when you read like a you know a, a snarky skeptical Bigfoot article and they're like you know Jerry Crew back in 19- and it's like no come on there's this this goes back way farther than that you know it goes back farther than that and it's a lot more international than that i mean something that tim is the the drum that tim's been banging for a while is that bigfoot is essentially you know an americanization of of the wild man archetype that we've been dealing with you know that 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 westerners have been dealing with way before we ever came over to america right right exactly um let's get it i want to get into this about uh since we're on the subject of folklore and other kind of beings, let's get into the fairy encounters and how those, those are similar to the to Bigfoot encounters. Well, uh, you know, I think it was Patrick Harper that said that he's just sort of taken to interpreting uh, Bigfoot as a, as a big, a big hairy fairy. Um, and uh, there, there are a couple of encounters that you'll find laced throughout the book that have these different aspects. Um, I think it's interesting that people think that they can communicate with Bigfoot through, you know, knocks. That was typically a way to summon an opening to the to fairyland, or you know, a, a means of uh, a means of communicating with fairies as well. Um, you know, you have this association with not only uh, underground spaces. Fairyland was underground. There's an association with Bigfoot hanging around abandoned mines and caverns, um, but also you know this this sort of vague, loose association with uh, buried treasure. And, and Bigfoot. Buried treasure and fairies, very well-known association. Anybody can just think of, you know, leprechauns. Um, but uh, if you look at something like buried treasure and Bigfoot, there are a couple of instances of Bigfoot hanging around and Bigfoot being seen in, in, in these state parks that supposedly had treasure buried by, uh, you know, 
uh, Billy the Kid or something like that. Or, you know, Oak Island has a, has a pretty interesting sleep paralysis Bigfoot story attached to it, too. And there's probably no more famous, uh, you know, buried treasure uh, in, in paranormal circles than the Oak Island treasure. Um, so you've got th- these sort of peripheral things. You know, a lot of people will say that, um, you know, well, fairies are supposed to be small. Well, yeah, but... Fairies were also inveterate shapeshifters, and there are plenty of cases of shapeshifting Bigfoot. Um, you know, Bigfoot maps on pretty accurately to what we, you know Scandinavians would call a troll. Um, there's a great story that I have seen. It was actually also written about in Mark Hall's uh, True Giants, which is a great book, but he whitewashes the hell out of this story. Um, it's actually the story that I opened the uh, the fairies chapter with. It's this uh, 1850s account uh, from Oregon about uh, a boy who was abducted by this tall, 12 to 15 foot tall, hairy man with eyes of, 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 of fire who takes him underground to the subterranean layer that's lit up by this uh, indirect light <laughs> with this domed ceiling. With all, that's made out of this, like, you know, it's this dome ceiling that's made out of seashells, every size and shape and color. And he hears this disembodied music, and there's a girl who comes up, um, this beautiful girl who comes up and places, you know, this, 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 this note in his hand and says, you know, you've got to get out of here or you're going to be trapped here forever like me and, and possibly be devoured. And he escapes. Now, you take out the Bigfoot, and that's, that's a fairy story. Like, you can find things that are almost identical in in the work of of Yates or Crofton Croker or you know Evans Wentz, I mean, like this is <laughs> this is a pretty clear fairy story, but it's got this this uh, this Bigfoot creature you know appended onto it, right? Because you've got you've got the girl there; they're underground. Like, where does she come from? Where does she even come from? Well, you know, um, yeah. So, so in fairy stories, that would typically be you know described as, if not just just a a general person, it would usually be like a deceased neighbor or relative who had either died or disappeared, who would come to you and say, this is what happened to me. You've got to get out of here. And you know, don't eat the food, leave us leave right now as soon as you can, that sort of thing. Right. And there's also, you also mentioned in that chapter, uh, who we've talked about this, Mark Anthony Wyatt, not too long ago about the knockers, like in the mines and that being underground. Um, and also being the concept of, of making knocks on on objects like Bigfoot does. Um, talk about the kobolds. I think that that's another thing that's underground, if I'm not mistaken. You know, you know the one that really blew my mind when I was looking at this? Because for anybody who doesn't know, and this is a line that I usually say in every interview when I talk about fairies. Fairies weren't just fairies. They were elves, dwarves, leprechauns, trolls, ogres, giants, mermaids. They all sort of fall under the fairy umbrella. The fairy right. family, as it were. Even you can even find people saying that things like basilisks were a type of fairy creature. I don't necessarily go that far. For me, fairies have to be humanoid and have to exhibit some sort of aspect of of child snatching or living underground. But uh, mermaids, there are a lot of weird similarities between mermaids and yes, Bigfoot. there are. Yes, there like, are. Yeah. Not only you know does Bigfoot appear mostly in areas that have uh, you know a, a strong amounts of rainfall. You can pretty much map those to. Um, put those two maps overlaid on one another but there there are plenty of accounts of bigfoot jumping in the water and swimming for vast distances underwater um you know kicking its feet up and down like mammalian uh you know mammalian aquatic locomotion tends to tends to happen or like you know if you think of a mermaid flapping its its uh feet up and down um you know people who see bigfoot 
you know, miles offshore. And of course the skeptical thing is, oh, you saw some driftwood, but there are plenty of, it's, it's kind of a known thing um, in the Pacific Northwest that Bigfoot really likes to, to swim around and go underwater. Um, you know, there was a, there have been people who have been grabbed by hairy arms underneath the water. <laughs> it's all, it's all really kind of, kind of wild. Um, there's, and if you look at this and you say, well, how does this make any sense? Um, some European traditions actually placed wild men and wild women as living in the water. Um, to the extent that there's a, there's a 13th century uh, German epic called Vigmar that has a wild woman who lives under the ocean who, uh, who is called the Vildesvip, which <laughs> sounds like Will, Will the Wisp, which <laughs> it ties back into the, to the lights and such. Um, you know, there are also in, in indigenous cultures here, some people who say that, uh, you know, Bigfoot analogs like the Sinaqua, who is, uh, I believe, a quackutal analog for Bigfoot, um, lives in a palace on the bottom of the ocean. So there's just there are these a lot of these really yeah. strange these strange things that suggest this aquatic affinity for Bigfoot. Um, right. It's another you know. hidden place like like underground. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. Don't get me started on like a, a Patrick Harper sort of interpretation of this about you know the the shadow and and the the, the subconscious about being submerged underground, you know. But yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. It's all about you know, being under, being you know subsumed by waking existence. So there's a lot to unpack there, and that, that's not even getting into you know the similarities because I find it so hard to separate fairies and aliens nowadays. Like they completely blur, blur together. Um, right. Right. And I can, I can make a pretty damn compelling argument if anybody <laughs> wants to fight me on that. Um, but, uh, you know, so this isn't even getting to that sort of the center of the of the Venn diagram that is fairies and extraterrestrials and Bigfoot encounters, you know. And all three, you have livestock mutilation, you have theft of milk, you have, uh, you know, basically child abduction. Uh, you know, even some changelings were attributed to wild men in Europe. Um, missing time happens in Bigfoot accounts nobody really likes to talk about it but there are some pretty prominent people that have had missing time um this this motif that i don't think gets nearly enough attention is this idea of the uh, the unrousable sleeper the idea that you know you hear these stories about people who are abducted and they look over and see their spouse and their spouse is just laying there and they're beating on their spouse and they can't get them to come up that happens so often <laughs> in bigfoot encounters too and it's also, you know, something, you know, fairies were often attributed power of, of sleep over human beings. It's probably where we got the, uh, the, the character of the Sandman is probably an evolution of, of, of fairy lore as well. There's also the, also the phenomenon of people seeing Bigfoot or a fairy or an alien or whatever, whatever the hell they are, and falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Going right back asleep. And that's something that's come up again and again on this show. I know on Tim's show. In your material, Josh. Yeah. And I've talked too long, so Tim needs to say something. Ask Tim a question. (laughs) I was going to say, uh, well, Josh, you mentioned earlier Knox is a kind of like, it's kind of a summoning. And Tim, you talk a lot about this ritualistic behavior that people exhibit towards Bigfoot in this chapter on gifting. I thought that was, that was, that's some of the most interesting stuff to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't see how. You can look at gifting to Bigfoot separate from from uh, the folklore gifting to to fairies or to these other creatures at all at this point. One of my favorite examples is um, some of the uh, the most strident kind of flesh and blood Bigfoot folks um, will often talk about planting a a Bigfoot garden. 
and they'll say, you, you have your own garden, and you don't want Bigfoot to come in and raid your garden, so you plant a special Bigfoot garden that's maybe closer to the trees. And Bigfoot will recognize this as, as a garden that you planted for him, and he'll leave your garden alone. And Bigfoot will just take from that garden. There is nothing in the natural world that acts like that. <laughs> any, any, animals are caloric opportunists. Any natural animal is going to look at that and go, oh, now I have two places to eat. Great. You know, so it's this idea of building this dedicated garden just to Bigfoot. And, and they've just they just do not see it as anything special at all. But I see it as complete intention. You have now, you know, expressed intention as regards to the phenomenon. You've built a special place for Bigfoot. And that's why the Bigfoot is going to that garden, because that's the dedicated Bigfoot garden that you've made. That's that's your dedicated, you know, kind of uh altar you've made to bigfoot and uh you know so that to me is like one of the plainest examples and and one of the funniest because they you know they just say well yeah bigfoot just knows that's his garden like like how would a bigfoot know (laughs) (laughs) well there's also there's also the fact that like if you don't give these offerings to quote unquote bigfoot he gets kind of mad well if you start and stop uh, that's yeah, what they say. Yeah. And and again, the flesh and blood people say that Bigfoot has now grown dependent on the food that you're offering him. And I, you know, I mentioned in the book, unless you're leaving wheelbarrows of food, you're not making a dent in the caloric needs of something that big. If we're talking about a natural animal that's eight foot plus and probably right. a thousand pounds. Right, right. It's going to have to eat constantly, and a couple candy bars are not going to make a dent in that thing's caloric <laughs> needs. So if they if they disappear, they disappear. But what we're talking about, you know, is is an offering. And if you cease to make mm-hmm. offerings to spirits, you're in trouble. If you start and stop, uh, that's that's bad news. That's all over folklore. You don't you don't start leaving stuff for for spirits and then stop because then then they get mad. Then bad stuff happens. And this is consistent with people saying that you know. Oh, I was feeding Bigfoot and then I, you know, I got drafted in the army and stopped. And then, you know, my parents had to deal with a crazy Bigfoot on the property who was, you know, beating on their house and climbing on their roof and so forth. You know, it's and it's the flesh and blood folks. Well, it was used to those calories. You know, no, it's it's uh, very, very consistent with with (laughs) he's uh, hungry. (laughs) Yeah, it's very consistent with uh, with folkloric uh, spirit offerings of food, you know, which which is all over the place in folklore. I mean, that's the simplest one to point to is Santa Claus. We leave him milk and cookies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and, and you re- there's a story that you do relate in the book where a guy gets out to where he has been leaving these offerings, essentially, to Bigfoot, right? And he's been leaving them there, but he forgot his he forgot his wallet so he couldn't go buy whatever it was that he was buying for mm-hmm. these creatures and then something really odd happens to him well first they and go it's just nuts. like physically impossible you, well first they go nuts and like as he's in the woods you know he he he, he was leaving the offerings in a cooler each time and uh, he said this time he just didn't have anything so he went and he set up the cooler like he would put the the, the food in the cooler and then leave and this time he just set the cooler back up as if there was food in it and left without placing any food in. And then he says, like, suddenly the, the woods go crazy. Sounds like, you know, monkey screaming. <clears throat> Things start getting thrown. I think he said pine cones were getting thrown at him from every direction. So uh, there's your little wilderness geist activity there. 
Um, he got screamed at uh, with such force that I think he said it, you know, kind of knocked him to the ground. He, I think he wet his pants. But anyway, he goes home 50 miles, 50 miles away on, on the two highways, two different highways. Goes home that night and goes to bed and is woken up by things slapping the side of his house, which he attributed to Bigfoot. And the, the host of the podcast that this, this story appeared on was a more of a flesh and blood type guy. And he says, uh, he, he posits these theories. First, he says that uh, it was these different Bigfoot clans that were kind of whispering down the lane to each other so that, <laughs> until the information got to the Bigfoot in his area to go harass him. Yeah, exactly. And then he said, well, maybe maybe he peed on your bumper and that's... <laughs> <laughs> they were able to track you that way by, uh, by the yeah, cell he, 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 he propped his leg up on the bumper and just you know went to town yeah exactly <laughs> so it's the flesh and blood folks they in order to make this weirdness work in their world where this is a natural creature they have to build these rube goldberg devices like this where they're like well it must have been different tribes of bigfoot and they were whispering to each other hey, go get this guy until it got to the bigfoot in his area it's, you know, like the tiptoeing through the tracks thing where they, you know, the tracks end and, and they say, well, they turned around and walked in their own tracks. It's like, the, no, like there's no evidence of that. You just, you know, the tracks would be messed up if that happened. These aren't messed up the tracks. And in some cases, they're extremely clear tracks to almost to a fault. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they just build these these like I, I call them verbal Rube Goldberg devices like, well, this must have the Bigfoot must have done this, this, this and this, you know, in order to uh, to reason it as some kind of natural thing that, that happened. And rather than just stop and say, oh, this is really weird. I don't know how this happened, which is one thing I'd like to point out that that we do with this book. We at no point in this book or in volume two will you ever hear us say Bigfoot is an interdimensional creature. Bigfoot is a quantum creature. Bigfoot is an alien. We don't we don't say that. We're very agnostic. Yeah. All, all we're doing is laying out example after example after example of the weird stuff associated with the Bigfoot phenomenon. And in volume one, we're comparing it to folklore. I, I did want to mention volume two is a lot less folklore heavy than volume one. Volume two is is where you find um, is where you find more of the uh, the stuff like you know disappearing trackways and and whatnot. Uh, I think I have a I have a list of volume two topics, but. Ah, here we go. Yeah, so volume two is going to cover. Well, maybe I should talk about what volume one <laughs> covers first before I talk <laughs> about volume two. Um, so the, the chapters for volume one uh, are the company they keep, Vildmusgeist, fairies, aliens, gifting, witches, ghosts, and women in white, and basically looking at how Bigfoot intersects with all those. Volume two is is on the chapters are on the mystery lights, um, odd vocalizations and mimicry, altered states of consciousness in Bigfoot, which I don't think anybody has really talked about ever. Um, hex signs, uh, oddly numbered toes, um, disappearing trackways or odd trackways, um, cause there are plenty of weird trackways where it's like just one left foot the entire way, or, you know, the trackway stops, like we mentioned, all sorts of weird anomalies, um, disappearing evidence, uh, an, an analysis of Bigfoot through the lens of George P. Hansen's trickster work, and then, uh, two case studies, which I don't think we've announced, but we might hold those close to our chest, but two case studies of, uh, of some, some people who have had some really strange Bigfoot activity piling up on. So, so, so volume two will be kind of more the straight up, this is the supernatural aspects 
that correspond to all the folklore that you guys have talked about in Volume 1? Yeah, the Rough Division is Folklore Volume 1, Evidence Volume 2, which isn't quite accurate because there's plenty of evidence in Volume 1 and there's going to be plenty of folklore in Volume 2, but that's just sort of the rough way that we decided to to, to break it apart. Yeah. It should be, should be emphasized that uh, even though we've obviously staggered releases so that people can wrap their heads around it, um, this this started out as one big book and, and they really do go hand in hand. You're going to find... You find references to Volume Two and Volume One, and vice versa. It was sort of all meant to be, you know, consumed all at once. So, Tim, you were talking about uh, this guy in the last case was leaving stuff in a in a cooler. Yeah, would that be a Yeti cooler? <laughs> oh, oh, boo! Oh. Go home. <laughs> I'm probably going to edit that out. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, you got to keep that in. Now you said it. You got to keep that in. All dad jokes must remain. <laughs> dad, yeah. <laughs> Doctor Future gets on here and tells a lot of dad jokes, so you know they they have to remain. Uh, back to some of the more the the fairy aspects, because I definitely do want to talk about the women in white. I want to talk about the witch connections. I want to talk about, but I want to hit the berry picking aspects uh, with both fairy lore and now I guess you could call it Bigfoot lore how berry picking people doing berry picking will encounter these beings. And then also the other, there's another intersection with the braiding of the horse's manes. Yeah. So, um, berry picking is one of those things that, you know, a lot of missing four one one fans will read it and they scratch their heads and go, what's it up? What's up with all the berry picking? I guess that's Seinfeld reading missing four one one. But, uh, but, Why um, do people even pick berries? <laughs> I know. You go to the supermarket. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that is something that you know has been noticed is the proximity for berry picking. And you know, if you look at fairy lore, especially from Ireland, but also imported into wherever you had Irish settlers settling uh, in the New World, you would find warnings against going berry picking. It was like the one of the most dangerous things that you could do was go berry picking because. You know, fairies hung around berry bushes. It's just it was just sort of an accepted fact of life. And there's an entire chapter in one of my one of my, not one of my books, but one of the books that I own, uh, uh, that's just dedicated to um, to instances of children who went berry picking and had fairy encounters in, in Newfoundland. Um, so this is definitely something that's part ingrained in the part of the culture. But you know, you'll find in addition to this missing four one one thing, in addition to the fact that fairies like to hang around berry bushes. You'll find a strong correlation in the new world with uh, with with Bigfoot and uh, and, and Barry Bushes. Um, you know, David Politis, before he was on the Missing Four on One track, he was a very sort of grounded Bigfoot researcher, and he was saying that one of the best places to run into Bigfoot was around Barry Bushes. Now, of course, if Bigfoot's a flesh and blood creature, these represent a, you know a good source of, of calories. But you know, you, you you'd find uh, in I think some tribes along the west coast. Um, would describe hairy ogresses that used to hang around huckleberry bushes and they would steal you if you got too close to the huckleberry bushes. Um, you know, and similarly people, like I said, to this day, we'll see Bigfoot in, in Littlefoot, which, you know, is a little Bigfoot. A lot of Bigfoot people say it's a, it's a juvenile Bigfoot. I point out that a lot of, a lot of entities in fairy folklore correspond strongly to this Littlefoot entity. But anyway, you'll see Bigfoot and Littlefoot around these berry bushes as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely something that's, 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 there's something there. I don't know what it means, but there's something there. Um, but the other thing that is really interesting to me is, um, tangled horses manes. Now, 
I personally, even though I believe that there's an objective reality to things like Bigfoot and fairies and UFOs, I think that there's something objectively real and non-human going on there. Um, I think that the tangled manes are, for the most part, people who don't, you know, the manes of horses whose owners don't brush them before they, you know, put them in the in the, in the stables. Sure. Having said that, uh, <laughs> having said that, there is a strong tradition uh, in the old world that uh, if you have your woke up and you know went out to get your horses and their their hair their their manes were braided, they would always describe them as braided. These were sort of like makeshift stirrups for the fairies to ride the horses' necks, or or sometimes in other traditions, these were for witches. Witches would braid the would deliberately braid the manes at night. They're um, called witch knots. They're like uh, yeah yeah. Yeah, still, still today, I believe, and they're called witch knots. Now, some people claim that they have found very elaborate braids, and there are some instances of people viewing large hairy hominids interacting with horses, and in a handful of cases, actually, yes, braiding the horses' manes. But having said that, from you know just a purely uh, interpretive cultural level, this belief that these other entities are the ones responsible for tangling horses' manes uh, has has completely trickled down to become its own trope in, in in Bigfoot lore. So now, whereas you'd have someone in you know 18th century Devon saying that you know oh the fairies came and braided our horses' manes, nowadays you'll have you know uh, you know uh, George from the West Mifflin Bigfoot Hunters group <laughs> saying that you know. There's a property a couple of uh, miles down the road that has horses, that, and all their braid, their manes are braided. Must be must be Bigfoot. Yeah, I always preferred Jim Bear King's explanation as to why the horses' manes were, were, were braided. Oh God, is this is this that story? <laughs> <laughs> I, strange, familiar people have banned me from talking about this anymore. By the way. <laughs> They've said it's too disturbing. Well, good. It's been a while since we had him on the show, but his uh, his explanation, and I spe- I heard him on another show, and I specifically got him on here to Conspiracy Normal just so he could tell this story, was that uh, Bigfoot is having relations with the female horses, and he's you've got one Bigfoot on the back end and one Bigfoot on the front end. Um. And... And he said that he had, he said that he had like, well, one to hold the mane, right? So then the mane gets twisted. That's how it happens. Yeah, the, the Bigfoot winds their fingers into yes. the mane. And that's pulls, that's why Mr. Ed learned how to speak, so that he could say, <laughs> oh, no. Wilbur. Pulls down on the, on the horse's head. Mane means no, yeah. And he said that he had a witness that uh, saw this. And uh, I've always imagined what it must have been like to be that guy. Like my my walk is, out. There's a there's a lot of detail involved in that. There's, there's a lot of detail involved in that account. So someone had to sit there and there's watch. A little, like fantasy. There's a little there's a little too much. Yeah yeah. Somebody watched for a long like saying this is true. Someone watched for a long time instead of going to like rescue the horse or I don't know. There seems to be plenty of options other than just sitting there. And uh, enjoying some horse rape on, on by the by the Bigfoot, it, it's so disturbing. <laughs> you, you know, you know, Tim. I, I think we might have found um, some some Patreon content for for a conspiracy normal. We, we need to do a dramatic reading of that Mary Green Bigfoot book where she describes Bigfoot's uh, Bigfoot's uh, member. There is 
hours of me and Clint going off on those two accounts, basically, that have never seen the light of day because I just I can't publish them. I can't, they're, just, <laughs> just, they're just too raw. Yeah, yeah. There was something about purple urine or something. Wasn't there something oh, like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And, oh my goodness. Yeah. We we'll save it for the patrons. Okay, we'll save it for the patrons. They'll, they'll get something. Reading. They'll get something really special to not <laughs> to the patrons on this one. Oh, um, <laughs> oh this is devolving. We got to get back on track really quick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please. Well, so we have to edit some of so, that. So so we mentioned we. So we mentioned about the the aliens, and we talked about how that they are seen. But there's also the the phenomenon, and we mentioned that in the first case, especially in Stan Gordon's material. This is all over the place. That Bigfoot is often seen in conjunction with UFOs or flying saucers. He's Bigfoot is often seen with either anomalous lights or structured craft. Yeah, that was that was sort of a sticky thing to try to separate out because I'm not always convinced that what we call the extraterrestrial contact experience is necessarily shouldn't be as tethered to UFOs as it is. Obviously, it appears in some accounts, but there are plenty of accounts where people are taken aboard some other space without ever seeing, you know, a structured craft. They might see lights in the sky, but in terms of like an actual what we would call, you know, flying saucer or something. So trying to figure out how to how to how to address that because not only is that sort of problematic, but um, you know sometimes a UFO might change into a light, and a light might change into a UFO. So my my chapter on extraterrestrials was more about the contact experience. Obviously, you can't talk about that without talking about you know UFOs and flying saucers. But uh, I, for the most part, I think that our our strange lights chapter that Tim. Uh, tackled is going to be the main place for that to show up in volume two the actual you know bigfoot seeing outside structured craft in this book it's about bigfoot seeing inside structured craft but the next one's bigfoot seeing outside structured craft it was just the arbitrary way that we had to to try to wrap our arms around this giant data set yeah it may or may not be two chapters uh in volume two i'm, I'm kind of punching it up now and getting it ready um it may be it's it's basically mystery lights, all the orbs and and all the other lights associated with Bigfoot, and then it's you know Bigfoot seen in conjunction with UFOs, and again Josh tackles Bigfoot seen inside of UFOs in his chapter, so that's basically how we we broke it up, and then so the majority of the light phenomenon stuff that's going to be tackled in volume two. Right, and there's but, but there is uh, but of course it's mentioned all over volume one too. It's it's so hard yeah. to like separate this stuff. It's so intertwined. Right. And but there is the there's also the association of Bigfoot with anomalous lights, too. That is that's that's very much a part of it. And Tim, you've seen these some stuff that is very similar to a lot of what what people have seen that have gone to places that are said that Bigfoot is there and you've ended up seeing lights. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, a, a couple different places. Um, you know, and, and I've been with you know, I've I've been with people, you know, where we're looking at the same lights, and the guy I'm with is saying, "Well, that that's Bigfoot's eyes," and I'm saying, "I I don't know, I don't know what that is. It's just a weird light," and he's you know insisting it's it's Bigfoot's eyes. So, 
I, you know, I go back and forth. Um, you know, mostly I land on weird light. I don't know what it is, but then I'll talk to, like, I had a witness come on my show, Jeremy from Texas, and he saw, you know, pretty much described exactly what I saw as far as the lights at Site 7, except that he saw them in the silhouette of a creature. So he's, you know, to him, 100% sure, you know, it was, these are Bigfoot eye glow. And it's a weird thing to talk about, eye glow. This, this is not eye shine. And uh, Jeremy, in fact, saw the lights change color in, you know, in the silhouette of the creature. So he saw a big, you know, black silhouette with uh, self-illuminating eyes that changed color. So that is not eye shine. That's some kind of weird eye glow. And, uh, you know, he's a great witness, 100% sure what he saw. And uh, again, whatever he describes sounds exactly like the lights I'm seeing at that that place we call Site 7. Now, whether it's the same thing or not, I don't know. But it certainly sounds like that. But, you know, I go back and forth as to what they are. I don't, you know, certainly we can say weird lights tend to show up in the same place that people say they say big, Bigfoot. We can say that much. Right. Right. That's the, the anomalous lights in Bigfoot. And, mm-hmm. and, and and speaking to Tim, you know, having seen these lights himself, I, part of the reason that I think that this works really well is because, um, you know, I, I, I have a real deficit in my own research uh, in terms of field work. If just for, for various different reasons, I haven't really had a good place or, or more specifically, I hadn't really had a, uh, a good partner to go out with because I think doing this alone is kind of ill-advised going out to strange places. But anyway, I was actually, ironically enough, before, you know, the lockdown, I actually was uh, going to get together with uh, Jerry Ablin uh, to go to some places that we decided. We'll, we'll still do that at some point. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I think well, that... You and that, Jerry going out uh, squash hunting is, is pretty scary, man. You guys be careful. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, if, if I don't show up and Jerry does, you know, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's up. Um, but, uh, but, but but I think that's part of the reason that this book works really well is because Tim really does compensate for some of my own, uh, my own, my own failings. And, uh, you know, the fact that he invited me to be a part of this, uh, is, is very humbling and I I appreciate it to no end. What about hairy extraterrestrials? Uh, Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because some of these things that people were seeing, um, uh, around the mid mid century in France and, uh, especially to this day in South America uh, are described in such a way that sound like these little foot creatures that I talk about, these tiny little Bigfoots, you know, these short hairy dwarves, um, which correspond to a lot of ancient and modern fairy sightings. I mean, you know, people talk about brownies as if they're some sort of, uh, some sort of, you know, little person. And you can find some evidence for that, but brownies were really more lobbed in with this brownies, bogles, goblins, that sort of that sort of tradition, which almost exclusively pr- presents these creatures as small, hair covered, and and having a simian appearance. Oftentimes, they're really compared directly to monkeys. So you do have you know you do have those sort of those sort of hairy extraterrestrials being like one of one of the most uh, prominent sort of visitors that you see in these craft. You know, we tend in America to think that we you know people are still just seeing alien greys, but people see all all manner of things, including you know including hairy dwarves. And that's, that's something that I talk about a little bit in the book. It doesn't, uh, Streber talk about hairy dwarves being a part of his contact. Experience? I'm not sure if he talked about dwarves. He definitely talked about things that he still calls the kobolds, which you had addressed, uh, earlier, um, which weren't necessarily explicitly hairy. They were just sort of little short blue, blue critters. Um, 
but you know, I, I'm I'm open to being wrong. I haven't I haven't an exhaustive uh, recall of of all of what these ovier. Yeah, he had some like he had the 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 grays, and then he also had some like little dwarf creatures. I can't remember if they were like hairy or what they or what they were. That that's in communion. I haven't read the rest of the material, but I do know that he does talk about that, and that's actually depicted in the film version of of communion. Yeah, but I don't know what if they were hairy. Though. I don't know if yeah. they were hairy in that like sort of hair covered sense, but I'm I can totally be wrong. Yeah, yeah. We, Something I thought. Something I thought was interesting was uh, the uh, where you're exploring the relationship between lore of witches and witchcraft and, and ghosts also, but this idea that where ghosts kind of in a physical appearance meet the Bigfoot phenomenon would be in a, there's a subsection of the chapter on witches that you call uh, goatia squatches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that really stood out to me. I think it's really cool. Well, you know, it, the, the big problem with, with, I mean, so one of the best things that cryptozoology has going for it in terms of the possibility of Bigfoot being a relict hominid is that there are things in the fossil record that, at least superficially, uh, represent uh, represent what we would describe as Bigfoot today if we saw them. Probably, mm-hmm. maybe, perhaps it's it's conceivable, right? But you get to people that are talking about something like Dogman. And there ain't no way <laughs> that anything that looks right, like that right. has any sort of precedent in the fossil record, nor is there right. any precedent for things like Goat Man or Sheep Squatch, like some people call it. Mm-hmm. And there sure as hell isn't any sort of precedent for something like Bat Squatch, which is a, bat, a Bigfoot with bat wings. Um, it's it's ridiculous. So, it's absolutely ridiculous. It that, is. You know, yeah. Now, now, I can say that's ridiculous and also not think that everybody's necessarily lying about that. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are just, you know, kind of going crazy. Um, uh, no, I'm just like, you know, sort of uh, joshing people and pulling the legs. But it occurred to me, and this is sort of an idea that, that, that uh, Gordon White hit me to, uh, there, you can kind of look at a lot of different cryptids as things that have some sort of vague precedent in, in the Goetia, uh, in these sort of grimoires, these, you know, different, uh, these different books that teach you how to summon different spirits. And, and there are some rough correlations to things like Dogman. Um, obviously, sheep, sheep Squatch sounds just like, you know, Baphomet, which wasn't technically a Goetic entity, I don't think. But still, um, you know, the, the Sheep Squatch definitely ties into that sort of tradition of satyrs and fauns and how that got co-opted into our modern, uh, you know, associations of, you know, the Sabbatic goat with, with Satan. Um but also, you know, there's if you if you squint your head and tilt, you can look at some descriptions of Beelzebub that sound like like Batsquatch, like this <laughs> these big leathery wings and uh, and you know just covered in hair. So it you know it kind of makes me wonder, especially when you look at sort of the work that Tim does in his chapter on gifting that you've already addressed about you know how there's a yeah. ritual involved with some of the, some of these giftings and uh, absolutely. Also, you know, Tim's work in, in volume two about hex signs, it seems to me like maybe what we're looking at is not some sort of like traditional lesser key of Solomon style parade of uh, parade of, of spirits. Um, I mean, and you look at, you know, the way that uh, you look at the way that Bigfoot behaves, um, you know, a lot of these Bigfoot encounters sound a lot like the way that people who are magical practitioners will tell you that spirits tend to manifest. You know, they they respond to invocations, you know, vocalizations and knocking on on uh trees they're more likely to manifest in areas of lesser you know human habitation they show their presence through environmental effects like you know knocks and and throwing rocks and stuff um 
and they're often they're, you often get a sensation of them being felt more than they've been when they more than they're seen. I mean, even people who are flesh and blood you know advocates will say that you know sometimes yeah. you just feel that they're in the area, and that's that's a one to one description and something that um we've had David Metcalf on the show, right? Oh, oh yeah. 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 Yeah, so so David was with us at uh, Paramania back in 28, 2019, which feels like a thousand years ago. People still did stuff. Yeah, when people still did stuff. Uh, we all we all went to uh, the, the the weekend culminated in a visit to uh, Expedition Bigfoot in in Cherry Log, Georgia, which is an absolutely fantastic uh museum of all sorts of Bigfoot ephemera. And uh it's interesting because uh I've gotten to know the the owner of the museum, David Bacara, uh and He's you know talks to me about constantly about how you know people are coming to to Expedition Bigfoot this Bigfoot museum and they're sharing their stories and it's he says he's uh, I'm getting all these stories from right around here and it's, it's just I guess we put it in a hot spot but Metcalf is the one that said well you know it, it, this place kind of functions as as a temple to Bigfoot mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like oh wow you really turned that on its head I just couldn't. Uh, you know, you've got these, you've got sacred relics there that are left by the phenomena. You've got a place for believers to come and, you know, people to, to be converted. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, and it's, it's, it's in a place of power, right? You know, there are Bigfoot sightings in North Georgia and, you know, it's almost like by putting a focal point for this phenomena, it's actually encouraged the phenomena to, to manifest even more, which was just like an idea that just <laughs> well, <laughs> made well, look, my brain explode. Look at all the people that go there every year and the people that put their intention and believe they believe in bigfoot so much and all of a sudden they start having sightings of him crossing the road and all this kind of different to uh, th- these different phenomenon happening it's like you know the the intention creates just like a tulpa essentially yeah no i i, I mean you know if you talk to me about that if you presented that idea to me you know 10 years ago i would have just thought it was the goofiest thing ever but it it makes it just it's so parsimonious and makes so much sense um and even even if it's not actually what's going on it's a great thought experiment right and there's other things in that chapter about ghosts about the bulletproof bigfoot like you mentioned before and phasing in and out of existence uh invisibility uh people talking about how they bigfoot will show up or will just disappear right in front of their eyes all these kind of things. And there was one story that really got me. And that was about the, uh, the floating hairy hands that would just like grab, uh, would like mess with people's cars and stuff like that. Yeah. You call it disembodied, hairy, disembodied, hairy hands. Well, this is a perfect, uh, you know, example of something that is culturally dependent because as I already addressed, you know, you have hairy hands appearing in seances all the time. Um, but there is no shortage of, of, of cases on the BFRO website that talk about big, this hairy hand that people assume is Bigfoot, not seeing Bigfoot. They just see a giant hairy, hair-covered hand reaching in through a window or something to grab something. Now, of course, it's logical, especially given our cultural construct, to think that that might be Bigfoot. But again, if you didn't see a Bigfoot, you can't definitively say it was a Bigfoot, especially when you're looking at the fact that there is this broad tradition of, of ghosts and poltergeists manifesting as, as hairy hands as well. And one of the most famous examples... Is uh, is this stretch of of uh, road in Devon in England that has is just absolutely famous for people driving down the road and having these these hairy hands you know grab the wheel Bigfoot take the wheel um, <laughs> having these hairy hands <laughs> having these hairy hands grab the wheel of your car while you're in your car these disembodied hairy hands 
Um, and they're associated with with a uh, with possibly the death of a prisoner, escaped prisoner, I believe. Um, but it's something that is is a very common phenomenon. I think the last one that I was able to find, I'm, I'm sure there have been more, but the last case that I was able to find was in 2008. Someone had these large hairy hands grab the wheel while they're driving uh, down the car. Um, make, and, sure you know, to, make sure to buy my bumper sticker, Disembodied Hairy Hands Are My Co-Pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um but yeah, it's 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 you know it's just another another one of those those things that is entirely cultural dependent, and that's that's sort of where I, I found a lot of inspiration for for writing this was just to throw to cast just one little sliver of doubt into people's minds of, over whether or not you know, well, we say it's Bigfoot because that's what our culture tells us, but it could be a lot of things, or it could be you know, Bigfoot could be all these things. Bigfoot could be just another mask that whatever this non-human other intelligence uh, decides to put on from time to time. Going back to the gifting, because uh, we didn't get to talk about what exactly people will offer things, material, food, whatever, to Bigfoot. But then, Tim, what does Bigfoot give back in return? Any number of things. So, you know, sometimes people leave food and they will get uh, dead animals in exchange. Presumably Bigfoot offering what Bigfoot eats in exchange. You know, they'll get a, a headless mouse or a dead bird or something. Um, sometimes they will get things like stones or feathers or, you know, little toys that seem like they've, you know, broken toys that seem like they've been in the woods or, or, uh, you know, parts of statues and, you know, different items they get in returns. Um, so it's, it can be, you know, any manner of things, found objects, you know, often they're, they're natural items, whether they, you know, feathers, bones, you know, stones, etc. What, uh, Tim, through your field work, um, do you have any advice for someone who wants to like start interacting with this, and, but, but thinks it may be more, non-material or or like all the things you guys are talking about folklore is explicit in its rules and this kind of dovetails into something i'd like to say whenever we talk about this book that uh, folklore is a term that i've heard the flesh and blood folks use with disdain over the years uh, as in oh that's just folklore as in regards to something and and by this, I think they mean, you know, folklore is equal to fiction. I like to point out that it, it absolutely is not. Um, folklore may be exaggerated and it may be, you know, the most outrageous elements of the stories are preserved. But there's a reason why the stories exist. And, uh, you know, as a, a folk singer who, who learned folk music in a, a fairly traditional way, the folk process is something that happens and, and things are handed down. And there's a reason why we have, we have a saying that uh, bad songs don't get to become traditional. So there's a, you know, only the good songs survive. And there's a reason why these folk stories survive. And it was our ancestors way of telling stories like this is how we deal with these other things, capital O other. Mm -hmm. um, and the rules are pretty explicit. Um, so that if, someone's you know wanting to embark on this a i would advise them to be cautious to be courteous and to be careful and as best they can observe the rules of folklore for instance uh they will tell you that um 
if you are given something, especially if you ask for it, do not refuse it. And I have my own experience with this where, where mm-hmm. I refused it and and I, I had some very, very negative uh, things that, that followed. So there are many, many, uh, you know, explicit rules in folklore that, that tell you how to deal with these things. And, you know, I simply don't have time to go over all of them here, but uh, most of them are common sense. Most of them have to do with politeness and uh, re- being respectful to, you know, others, both uh, capital O and, and uh, lowercase o, others. So let's get into witches. I wrote it down as hairy and otherwise, and their similarity to Bigfoot, because this is not something that, this is not a subject that you would think would be even remotely have anything to do with Bigfoot, but somehow the folklore ties in to Bigfoot. And I want to kind of ease this in because I think that these go together into this, these, these women in white stories. Yeah. I, I don't know what hit me to think of, of Bigfoot through the witch lens, but, um, there, there's something there. I'm not really sure. Uh, there was a great encounter that was shared with Seth Breedlove um, in the Minerva Monster documentary, his first one, where there's a witness who's talking about meeting a friend who says, oh, there's a hairy witch that lives out back. And they ran into the Minerva Monster. And I was like, hairy witch, huh? Hairy witch. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of ended up yielding um, some some uh, interesting, interesting fruit. Uh there are some native traditions that talk about, by the way, for anybody who's wondering, we, we try to pinpoint every tribe that we can, you know, we're not, we're not treating native Americans as a monolith. We try to pinpoint every tribe by name whenever we can, just so no, are saying like native Americans say this. Um, there are right. some there, but having said that off the top of my head, there are some native American traditions that explicitly describe Bigfoot as humans who are, who are magical practitioners. Um, and then if you look into sort of the European folklore, there is a direct prominent conflation of the wild woman, which is, you know, the, the female counterpart to the wild man, the wild woman with witches. Um, and there's also a very strong correlation in European uh, folklore of witches being hairy, which is having beards, which is, you know, not only having beards and being hairy, but also gaining power from uh, being hairy. And so from that, it just sort of all snowballed out of control. Um, you know, you'll find stories of witches who are bulletproof. Uh, you'll find, uh, you know, sort of uh, descriptions of of Baba Yaga as being this, you know, Baba Yaga, the, the Russian witch of Russian folklore, as being tall and covered in hair. Um, and, uh, you know, this sort of ties into the idea that there's you know, also this conflation between tall, hairy hominids and skinwalkers. Well, this is kind of an explanation for that. As skinwalkers are human beings that have basically sold their soul to have magical properties, then it makes sense why in some traditions, skinwalkers would be described as human warlocks. And people would also describe skinwalkers as tall, hairy hominids. It sort of provides some, uh, some connections in there. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in some traditions, Bigfoot were ascribed, uh, having hypnotic powers by rubbing their bodies with a strange medicine, a strange, you know, ointment or, or material that's exactly how european witches would fly uh it wasn't had, right. it had nothing to do with a broomstick it often had to do with like you know grotesquely enough making like 
making a jelly out of a, a fetus or something and then rubbing their body with it. There's so, some there's some thought that some of that that, that could have been hallucinogenic that flying was a metaphor. I've yes, heard that. Yeah. Now 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 for in case anybody's wondering, we're not talking about like modern practitioners of, of, of magic who call themselves witches. This is this is the archetypal this is the archetypal witch. Um but you know there there are a couple of you know modern connections here and there that uh that speak to this connection that we that we don't even realize that we've internalized. I mean, the number of people who describe Sasquatch crying and sounding, you know, screaming and sounding like a witch. And I thought it was a witch. Oh, it sounded like a witch and a gorilla. This this is a description that comes up time and again. And there are actually a handful of encounters uh, where people describe um, Bigfoot as witches. There was actually a, an encounter that was shared to the Strange Familiars Facebook page today, where somebody saw a Bigfoot and they're like, "Well, I never heard of Bigfoot, but my, you know, my great grandparents were convinced that there were witches in the woods." And I'm like, "Damn it, that would have been great to have included." But um, and then there's, you know, there's there's this story, which is a little bit too long to get into, but a story from 1929 of, of uh, Charlie Victor, who was basically, who basically um, wounded a boy that was apparently under the care of a female Bigfoot, and she spoke to him in his language and basically cursed him, uh, which is something that, Let me ask you a question about that story. Yeah, uh, she speaks to him in a language called Douglas. I was yes. not familiar with that. Uh, Douglas is there's technically not um, if 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 memory serves. So um, if, so if people forgive me, but um, I think the Douglas tr- Indian tribe. It's not necessarily its own language, but it is its own nation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there, there is a there is a Douglas First Nation that is um, that is in the Pacific Northwest. I think of British Columbia. I think, um, yeah, it's it's not. I, I'm I'm not sure either if that's. Uh, I'm sure it is. It's probably an Anglicanized name. You know the uh, the when Winnebago looked, weren't the Winnebago. They were actually the Ho Chunk. That sort of thing. When when I when I was trying to look it up, um, some some Bigfoot websites came up and it said that that was one thing that Bigfoot will speak in this language. Yeah, but you've heard, I mean, you know, I've heard people say that they recognize, you know, Bigfoot as being anything from Russian to Japanese to mm-hmm. made right. up languages that don't exist. You know, that's, I go into this in, right. in, in sort of the, the volume two is when I talk about vocalizations and mimicry. I mean, there's plenty of cases of Bigfoot straight up talking to people. Um, and, but there are also examples like the Sierra sounds where people pick out like a word here and there that kind of sounds familiar. And it's basically like, you know, some sort of, I think it's some sort of auditory pareidolia is what people are you know getting kind of like EVPs. Um, but, uh, so this it, story with the, with the witch and the boy, well, now, that... now, now, now never says a witch, but okay. it's a wild woman who comes out wild and puts woman. a, cur- and puts a curse on him. And again, curses are one of those things you never talked about fairies because they would curse you. You know, you never offended the fairies because they would curse you with death. And that's something that <laughs> they're very prominent cryptozoologists who would say that no such thing as a Bigfoot curse exists because they're very invested in the flesh and blood hypothesis. But uh, we, I sort of go through and point out why the examples that this individual cites um, uh, as not being evidence are actually, to the contrary, quite quite suggestive that there's evidence that the act of speaking about or, you know, offending, uh, offending, uh, Bigfoot kind of does have some repercussions in some cases. There was a, 
uh, an expedition. Well, I'm getting a little bit off track, but there was an ex- a newspaper account of an exhibition, an expedition rather through the Rockies uh, that I found where uh, the individuals basically slaughtered a tribe of Indians who were covered covered in hair, and I think like maybe a third of the people came back alive, and like half of those were were you know crippled for the rest of their lives. So there does seem to be something there. In this case, um, she uh, she cursed. Charlie Victor, uh, that he would never kill a bear again. And, uh, he was paralyzed. He was paralyzed. He ended up being paralyzed. The witness ended up being paralyzed 15 years later. And, uh, this, this particular cryptozoologist said, well, the curse doesn't make any sense. There is no curse in this case because he was paralyzed 15 years later. And I'm like, yeah, but she didn't say she was going to paralyze him. She said that he wouldn't shoot a bear. And that, that happened immediately. Like, you know, you can't, you know, so, so there's, there's some, some playful interpretation that some people like to do, um, to sort of further their own agenda, I feel like. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, they're Bigfoot curses are a thing. Then you sort of have to unpack, you know, the depiction. I mean, there's, there's a direct line of, 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 of ancestry, folkloric ancestry. There's a direct chain. This is not debated by anyone because it's, it's basically, a commonly held belief amongst folklorists that satyrs and fawns um, em- sort of evolved. Uh, ev- they, they were sort of a direct antecedent to the wild man archetype, which in itself sort of branched out into interpretations of Satan uh, because, you know, you had the, uh, the demonification, the, the, the demonization rather, of uh of pagan rituals so obviously if they're cavorting with fawns and satyrs those must be demons that's why we get you know demons with cloven hooves and goat heads that's why satan has cloven hooves and goat heads but you know the satan wild man thing is is a really close um a close relationship as well and you know to the extent that uh wild men specifically apes were used as a symbol of man's sin um, in a lot of in a lot of Renaissance yeah. art, uh, so S- you, S- Satan is described as God's ape, in yeah, all kinds of yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, and 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 so I mean, even in some like art, there's like you know an ape in the Garden of Eden, you know, representing you know original sin, waiting to to jump at the the chance. So it really is this big, like interflowing, interconnected pot of like satyrs and fauns and uh dionysus and the green man and satan and the wild man and out of that sort of comes you know <laughs> bigfoot himself um and there are cases there there's there's at least one case of uh cloven hooded bigfoot the 1913 traverse spine gorillas case in, in labrador mm. Canada. um so it's, it's just an interesting you know i actually have a <laughs> Uh, 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 it's always sunny in Philadelphia style, like conspiracy board that I drew out on some carpet, <laughs> some cardboard about like, you know, all these different intersections. I mean, you know, T- Tim alluded to, to sa- us leaving cookies and milk out for Santa Claus. I mean, it's also a pretty widely accepted, uh, matter of, of European folklore interpretation that Santa Claus, while, you know, borrowing St. Nicholas, the, the church figure is basically an evolution of the wild man archetype. Uh, you know, so sort of a combination of the wild man archetype and and Odin, who shares his own etymological origins with the the Wodwos, which was I kind think. of like a big, tall, hairy fairy or a wild man. And Odin may be the Ur wild man anyway. He may be the you know the the original archetypical wild man. And you know, Santa Santa hangs out with with elves. Like so, there you can you can draw all these these robust like 
almost Jungian sort of sort of correlations and and uh, and relationships that just I think it's part of the reason that when people have gotten the book after listening to so many interviews, they look at it and they're like, oh, this is a lot this is a lot better than your interviews because you kind of have to see it all laid out at once to really sort of wrap your start to wrap your head around. Sure. And I mean, you can't do justice to it in, in an hour and a half interview. You got to read the book. It's hard yeah. to weave it together in the book. It's it's not impossible to weave it all together in an interview. Yeah. The the women in white. Now, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of this book. May I give my usual preface, Tim? Sure. I thought Tim Renner was full of it when he came to me and said, "Yeah, man, there's there's this connection between uh, between between big between cryptids and and women and, and women in white." I'm like, "What the heck are you talking about?" And he uh, he talked about uh, Aaron David and Kelly's sighting of of this uh, this devil monkey, which I'm like, "Okay, that's it's a one off. It's a white it's a white thing that they saw that's kind of simian." But I'll be damned if he didn't start pulling on this thread. And just everything, absolutely yeah. everything, just started spilling out. And of course, the women in white, like you said, has associations with witches, but also you know fairies. I mean, the banshees were often women in white. Um, it's just it's it is an, it's an archetype that is somehow wedded to uh, this Bigfoot thing, and I don't know what it means. But Tim is right, and this is something that I can confidently say that no one has ever has ever broken apart. So kudos on you, Tim. That's amazing. Well, yeah. this started with, you know, real, real world, Bigfoot boots on the ground research, you know, uh, well, it started with Sasquatch Chronicles. They have this amazing story of these two brothers that, that were seeing Bigfoot creatures. And then they start seeing this, this weird woman, uh, woman in white entity. But after that, I, you know, I started seeing it in real world, uh, investigations. So, um, I'm talking to Bigfoot witnesses and it's coming up, you know, local Bigfoot witnesses are coming up. Like they, they're having big, one guy had Bigfoot on his property. And then, uh, I went out there to investigate the Bigfoot. And then he, before I go, he tells me, well, you know, I also have ghosts and stuff. And he starts showing me all these pictures, some of which look like, uh, you know, just ghostly figures and faces that he was saying were bikers. They were the ghosts of bikers, but I, I saw them as, very much looking like uh, Bigfoot faces, big hairy. You know, he was seeing them as sunglasses. I was seeing them as big eyes and these like very ghostly kind of figures. But um, along with this, he showed me a picture of a full bodied apparition that he had taken in the mirror, a picture in the mirror of, uh, and it was a woman in a white dress. Uh, you know, so I started following that away and I'm going on these other Bigfoot investigations. Uh, one of them is an area called pond bank around here which is uh, next to Michaud Forest which is probably your number one place in Pennsylvania for Bigfoot sightings and I met a witness out there who had heard me talking a little bit about the women in white and Bigfoot thing and he put it together in his own head that his sighting was he had a Bigfoot sighting a mile away from this place called pond bank not even a mile probably three quarters of a mile from this place called pond bank um, pond bank has a woman in white legend associated with a, a ghostly woman in white that appears there. Um, I interviewed him on strange familiars, by the way, in the background, you can hear something very, very deep moaning throughout our interview. It's, it's very creepy. I, uh, it's called, I call it the pond bank groan. Sounds like people have compared it to like a tube and throat singers or uh, like, which I did not hear while I was interviewing him, by the That's way. That's weird. That- yeah. It, well, in, interjection. That seems to be a uh, 
that seems to be a significant uh, a significant sound that is described in other literature and uh, actually described in two other uh, really reputable sources that I can think of, and that gets addressed in Volume 2 under Altered States. So from here, it was just a matter of me sort of like, okay, so I'm going to start looking this up. And I was only looking in modern cases at first, and then I started to look in folklore and you know in, in history and i'm kind of going back and i i started finding some stuff and then i found perkta uh this this entity from uh germanic folklore some say she's a like a moon goddess but others say she's, she doesn't really qualify as a goddess she's just one of these sort of folkloric figures kind of like the german equivalent of of baba yaga probably she's just kind of witchy woman in the woods and they said she always wore white um she could appear as an old hag or as a, a young maiden. And some of the legends have her with one or both feet being gigantic swan's feet. Now, uh, Josh has, has cleverly pointed out that if you look at a, a swan's foot or any kind of bird track, it would appear to be three-toed. Now, we have you know, multiple cases of uh, Bigfoot encounters with uh, three, creatures leaving three-toed tracks. And three-toed track finds. Now that, that's all very interesting, but uh, this perked entity was known to have an affinity for children, like Bigfoot. She's you know would call from the woods, like Bigfoot, et cetera, et cetera. But then you get to her, uh, the company she keeps, say, and she has this this uh, retinue consisting of two groups, and the one is the Heimchen, which were the souls of the dead children that she called off into the wilderness and never returned and these souls of the dead children took the form of will of the wisps lights so here you have the orbs which are associated with the bigfoot phenomenon and the other group that followed perkta around was the perkton and they were a group of hairy wild men that came from the mountains and would do things like throw stones at houses and harass people in the towns and so forth so we have an explicit collection between this this you know folkloric woman in white entity, this you know kind of witchy woman, and what you know for all accounts are these hairy wild men. And and you know to interject here as well, like the Perkton were not only just wild men, but sometimes in some traditions, they were sort of depicted as similar to Krampus, which looks like a satyr or a faun, which ties into this whole big you know <laughs> this whole big uh, soup of satyrs, fauns, wild men, Bigfoot, you know, the devil, etc. Yeah, and and from that point, it was just a matter of like fanning out the folklore, and it really goes across the world at least across europe and africa um there's folkloric figures in in germany and and in in the norse and in russia and africa and southern europe that are these various wild men that they're they will say that either their wife or their female counterpart it depends on on the folklore is a either a woman in white just explicitly would say like it's a woman who wears white or they will say it's a white creature that goes along with them. And uh, there's, you know, wild men in England that, that are associated, you know, the apple tree man who has his, uh, he guards the orchards, but he is aided in this by this, you know, old crone who wears white. Uh, there's the, the uh, Lishi, I believe, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, the, basically the Russian wild man, protector of the forest, 
his wife wears white. So you find it all over. I haven't found anything in um, the Far East yet, but I'm sure it's there. It's just a matter of uncovering it because it's all over. It's in folklore all over. These creatures, these wild men from all these different cultures have a significant other that is a woman in white. It's, it's a very bizarre thing, but it's borne out by the folklore. And even in one of the most famous cases of Bigfootery, Sasquatchology, I guess you could call it, <laughs> there, there is a kind of proverbial woman in white. And this case, you know, the Ape, the Ape Canyon case is kind of like the Roswell of the Bigfoot material. It's kind of the beginning of it. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of the most uh, oft referred to cases from history. Like if, if you just got a generic Bigfoot book, you know, that that was like kind of a survey of Bigfoot, um, chances are they, they would have this case in it. But uh, every account I've ever read, other than Fred Beck's own account, now Fred Beck was one of the miners in this case, has been completely weirdwashed. And they've taken out all the strangeness associated with it, and they present only the aspects of the story, which make it sound like there was a bunch of monkeys in the woods. Um, it's, it's a very strange case that starts with, uh, these miners encountering the, what they call the ghost of a giant Indian. Now, you know, how giant and what he looked like, they, they don't go into too much, who tells them to follow a white arrow through the sky. And they follow this white arrow along the way. They meet this other spirit and they said, this is female spirit who they named Vander White, or maybe she introduced herself. Now, they never describe her, but her name is actually Vander White. So here we have a spirit, at least with the name of White. And uh, they end up na naming their gold mine, the Vander White Mine, after this spirit. Um, they're in residence in a cabin at this. And, and mostly the story you hear is that they take a shot at one of these creatures one day. And that night, a group of creatures come and attack the cabin. Um, but what they don't tell you is all the other strangeness around the case, not only these spirits and this white arrow in the sky, but things like finding two tracks in the middle of an, an acre wide sandbar along the river with the, no indication of, you know, where it went to or from just one, two tracks in the middle. They, I think one of the miners said, it looks like they, something picked them up and sat them down and picked them up again. Um, and they were hearing strange sounds coming from the ground. I think machine like sounds and drumming, uh, Fred Beck, the, the miner who later wrote about the case, um, said that he had an port of a pencil in his hand, which he was sure to, was at his house. He needed a pencil one day and just appeared in his hand. So there's all this other strangeness associated with the case, which is just completely left out. It's completely weird watched in all these other accounts in favor of making it sound like gorillas in the woods. And Fred Beck himself had a quote where he said, uh, in no way did he or the other miners think that uh, it was... It was a natural creature at all. It's actually, he said, uh, first of all, I will say that they are not entirely of this world. They, they being Bigfoot. I know the reaction we experienced as these beings attacked our cabin impressed many with the concept of great ape like men dwelling in the mountains. And I can say that we genuinely fought and were quite fearful and we were glad to get out of the mountains. But I was one, I was for one, always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings. And I know the other members of the party felt the same. So that's in the 1960s. Uh, he was writing that account, you know, remembering uh, 
he he wrote it with his son i think in the 1960s remembering this this account in the 1920s so um he himself he's he's the witness he's the guy who wrote the story and he said himself there was something supernatural about these we didn't think they were natural creatures uh at least as far back as as you know the 60s so you know i again if we're going to believe witnesses which we have to because without witnesses we really have nothing other than a few casts uh to go by so if you're going to believe witnesses you can't say oh i believe the witness saw a giant ape man and then throw out everything else the witness says that's crazy it's you're you it's just not a good thing to do it's not truthful so we all fred, live in we, we all live in glass houses right yeah yeah there, fred there's Beck also, himself said there was more to it so i i say there's more to it you know there's also a correlation uh, to the women and to the lady in white. You talk about uh, Chickamauga Battlefield, which I'm right down the street from at the moment. I'm not that far away. And that's that's another one where you have this kind of dichotomy between the lady in white or the woman in white and some weird creature. It's a woman in white who carries a weird light as well. They say it's this yeah. supposed woman in white who swings a lantern as she crosses the battlefield. So she has you know your weird light. And then they had this old green eyes entity that's associated with it, which, uh, you know, tells supposedly that during the breaks in the battle there, that, that these big hairy, they called them ghouls, were coming out and, and eating the bodies of the dead Confederate soldiers or carrying them off. I forget which. Mm-hmm. But uh, to this day, people claim to see this old green eyes entity, which, you know, many say is Bigfoot. And, you know, descriptions vary. Uh, I think the description in the book is something very weird. It sounds like a Bigfoot creature with a cape on or something. That, yeah, that the uh, I think that one of the guys who worked at the park, uh, you know, witnessed this. But uh, Gettysburg has it too. You know, um, battlefields and Bigfoot go together, but so do battlefields and women in white. So you know, they share this common ground. It just it it it's, it really I mean stuff stuff like the Chickamauga, old green eyes and the women in white and the light. I mean, it's just these stories keep on appearing so often and it really starts to look like these are just these, again, these overlays that we have, it's the same suite of phenomena. And just depending on, you know, whatever we encounter, you get, you know, the, 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 the woman in white looking for her lover's body with a lamp, or, you know, you get a hairy creature or you get, you know, uh, you get an anomalous light in the sky that's zipping around, or you get something that looks like a, a, a fairy. I mean, it, it really seems like it's just the same the same thing over and over again. It's almost like every every story is the same, but what mask it decides to wear is you know it just depends. It depends on the person, and depends on the culture, and it depends on the time, and it depends on all these other factors. Right. Yeah the the existence the existence of the other taking on the form that. I believe it thinks that it wants us to see something that's very culturally specific. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if we explicitly talk about this in either volume, but you know, one of the ideas that, that we kind of bat around as we've been talking about this and it it's apt in the comparison to, you know, that we talk about the UFO phenomena and the Bigfoot phenomena and the flesh and blood hypothesis and the nuts and bolts hypothesis, et cetera, the ETH uh, stuff, the, Wild man archetype itself seems to change. So we have in medieval times this, this Wadwos, who they were often wizards, they were, which is a, it's a form of knowledge and wisdom. You know, these, these uh, were, were ascribed to the wild men. And then uh, working up into, you know, the 1800s, where I've, I've uncovered a lot of articles which seem to show, you know, 
what I think to be Bigfoot or, or the same things people describe as Bigfoot today. And in the 1800s, there's a lot of articles which describe these wild men. Otherwise, you know, big, hairy things. They, they don't appear to be human, but they're maybe they're wearing clothes. And previous to starting these volumes, I kind of thought, well, maybe this is the you know Victorian prudishness where these these editors are throwing clothes on these creatures, you know, as far as in the article, despite what the witnesses were saying, just because, of, you know, people couldn't handle the idea of a gasp, a naked wild man running around in the woods. <laughs> but as you know, we're talking about this and we talk about how UFOs change over time. You know, in the late 1800s, they were airships. They looked like, uh, you know, uh, dirigibles and and so forth that uh, people were seeing. And then UFOs changed to this more like 50s kind of sci-fi ships and and they keep evolving. I think, uh, you know, post Star Trek and Star Wars, you get a lot of like, you know, giant crafts with, you know, all kinds of you know, tech and stuff on them. And then up until today where people seem to be seeing like plasma balls and so forth. Well, the wild man archetype, I think maybe, maybe that's been changing too. Maybe it was, you know, a hairy guy partially clothed. You know, some of those old 1800s articles have them even carrying rusty muskets that refuse to fire, you know, but they're, they're identifiable as muskets that, that they're carrying around. Like the, you know, remnants of, of, you know, these partially wild beings, you know, they're not fully wild. And, uh, you know, this kind of idea we've batted around is, you know, maybe the archetype itself has changed over time, just like UFOs have changed. And as UFOs have seemed to get more like technical, they get, get more like sci-fi and more more advanced. It's like the wild man has gotten wilder over time. And perhaps as, as we've gotten further away from wilderness and more, you know, into our homes and cities and, and dependent upon modern technology and so forth, our wild man perhaps has gotten wilder. And we have this very, very wild Bigfoot right now as our wild man. Yeah, and I, we, we do talk about that briefly in in uh, I don't can't remember where, but we do in in chapter in a uh, volume two. And is it volume two? Okay, yeah, it is. Yeah, I remember writing that. I can't think of anything more popular right now in the paranormal than Bigfoot. It's Bigfoot that, is probably yeah. the most popular one at this very moment. Well, we're ready to blow it up. Well, I think I think we, I think we <laughs> talked about this a little bit. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit before uh, the Strange Realities uh, conference, but, um, you know, it's almost like Bigfoot as Forest Garden, not Forest Garden, Forest Guardian. <laughs> Bigfoot as Forest Guardian is kind of stepping up as we're, as we're making Earth, you know, more and more difficult to live on. It's almost like, the archetype of the forest guardian Bigfoot is coming forward to sort of save the day. It kind of has a little bit of that feel. Not that I literally believe that, but it, I think it's interesting that, you know, Bigfoot is like the most naturalistic of all, you know, of all, uh, of all um, paranormal phenomena that you can get at besides something like fairies. But, uh, but it, it, he's, he's on a resurgence at a time when we're, you know, we seem to have painted ourselves into a corner environmentally. But uh, that's a really good point, Josh. That's a really good point. Oh, the nice. idea of the, the the idea of the return of, return to the land, what that spirit represents, yeah. And 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 I've also noticed that Bigfoot also serves the purpose of people getting out into nature and using it as an excuse. It's almost become its own kind of like uh, extreme sport <laughs> <laughs> in a way. 
Yeah. Uh, Serfiel, was there anything that you wanted to ask? Well, one thing I just wanted to point out, um, how beautiful the book is itself with all Tim's artwork and everything. And that, um, you know, I just have a digital copy right now, uh, to read for the show, but I plan on definitely getting a physical copy because I'm sure it looks really nice, you know, on actual paper. It's a, it's a piece of art itself. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, one of the things I wanted to do, there's a certain look old folklore books had, and they, they were just really nice to hold, you know, and, 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 that was one of the things I wanted to do with this is I was like, I, you know, I want to kind of have that feeling of those, those great old folklore books. I didn't illustrate it in the same way that I illustrated, say, don't look behind you. My last book that I wrote by myself, just because I, I think there's so much information in here that the information has to present itself in a way. So I did, you know, masthead chapter masthead illustrations. And I did, like one big frontispiece for it. And I do little spot illustrations at, at the end of each chapter to just kind of set the mood a little bit. But um, w- what I really wanted was to sort of call to mind those old folklore books that I love so much. I know Josh does too. That You know, we, we spent so much time digging through uh, as we prepared this volume. So um, I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. I, I, I tried. I tried to make it look nice. Yeah, it we looks sort of, great. We sort of parsimoniously landed on a, a, a representation of the uh, the um, table of contents that uh, really, you know, with with listing each individual section underneath the chapters that I think really harkens back to this old folklore books too. Also, it's sort of a, a way, you know, some people might open this book and be like, "Well, wh- where do they talk about bulletproof Bigfoot?" And part of the challenge was to to nest certain anomalies about Bigfoot in certain chapters. So there's not a chapter on invisible Bigfoot, but all the invisible Bigfoot stuff went into the ghost chapter. You know, there's not a chapter on interdimensional Bigfoot, but it went into this chapter. Bulletproof Bigfoot went into this chapter just to have a place to, to sort of to, to nest things. But uh, also something that I think it's, it's worth repeating, and I'm going to start repeating it from here on out. The ebook is available, but uh, if you buy the ebook, I honestly don't recommend buying the ebook because you you lose so many mm-hmm. of these illustrations that Tim has put into it. You lose um, a lot of the the, the typesetting that he's done with with this with the font, and uh, it just it, I think that it it I think that it functions best as a uh, what I've been describing as as a, as a lovely artifact in that A R T E F A C T sort of way. It's it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a lovely like. It's, it's just, it just it just feels nice to have it. I say that not having it, but I, I know it will. I still haven't got my <laughs> copy yet. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been awesome. Um, guys, tell everybody where they can find each one of you. Uh, Josh, tell them where you find your your books, where they can get this book. And Tim, tell everybody about uh, Strange Familiars, which oddly enough is a title of a section in this book. Go I ahead. like how I like how you did that, Josh. Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was, I was deliberate. Um, you can find out all about me if you're that much of a masochist at uh, joshuacutchin.com, um, and uh, you can find links to all my books, uh, including the ones that I've just been a contributor to over there as well: uh, A Trojan Feast, The Brimstone Deceit, Thieves of the Night, and then two uh, collections of essays that I contributed to, as well as Where the Footprints End, Volume One: Folklore, Bigfoot. High strangeness in the Bigfoot phenomena. Yeah. All right. 
All right, cool. Uh, and Tim? You can find me and Strange Familiars Podcast at strangefamiliars.com. All the links there go to me. Uh, you can find links to things like my Etsy shop there where I sell original artwork uh, and selling artwork from my other books and, and stuff. Um, you can find all my books on Amazon. You can order them from me usually. I'm waiting for restocks of my books, including the, this uh, Where the Footprints End. You can order them directly from me if you want signed copies, but uh, you can get them on Amazon as well. You can look up either Timothy Renner or look up the titles of any of the books. I've, there's uh, five of them now, including this one with Josh. And uh, like I said, everything else is at strangefamiliars.com. So yeah. uh, check it out, and you can hear the podcast there as well. Both of you guys are really prolific, and uh, you guys doing this has been – this is like your – I think you guys magnum opus. So I'm so really happy that you guys are doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, you guys are going to do a Patreon with us. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit more, some aspects and maybe get you guys a little bit, uh, some rowdy entertainment with these guys. But oh, uh, uh, just to mention real quick, volume two, I know everyone always asked when is volume two coming? The, the aim is before the end of the year. Um, we'll see. Excellent. You know, excellent. Things have delayed us before, but uh, that's, that's the aim. We're hoping before the end of the year. Excellent. Cool. Excellent. All right. Uh, we're going to close out the show guys. Uh, we're going to do it this, this way. Um, please remember uh, our Patreon and you guys can join for as little as $1. Uh, we're going to have these guys do a little Patreon segment for us. And Serfiel, tell everybody where they can find that. Uh, you can find that on patreon.com slash conspiranormal, or you can also make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And uh, like Adam said, we've been putting out bonus content every week, so we should have something cool every week for you. Absolutely. And uh, if you feel free, leave us some more because it really helps us. It really helps us get the show out there really helps us with the cost of doing it and also if you cannot do that please leave us a good review on itunes and also subscribe to the youtube channel which is under conspiratorial podcast all right guys josh tim thank you so much for being part of this special episode of Thanks where the footprints having. end on conspiratorial Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.